Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's works, people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of all the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is, Christ. From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Stop there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for, yes, last Sunday, for Easter, for the incredible celebration, for the 800 or so people who came to worship your name here, for the thousands more who gathered to worship your name around the South Shore. Lord, we thank you for all the new faces that came Easter, and we thank you for the, for the spirit of joy and celebration that you poured out on us. We thank you, Lord, that even this Sunday you are still risen. We thank you for your word, which never changes, whether it's Easter or Christmas or some Sunday during the week, during the, during the year. Lord, we thank you that your word is what we look to for our strength. God, you have commanded me in Second Timothy to preach the word, to be prepared in season and out of season. And so we thank you, God, whether it's Easter or not, whether it's a sunny day or a gloomy day, whether the preacher feels tired or energized, whether the congregation is having a tough week or a good week, you've called us to gather around your word because it is your word that breathes life into your church. And when your word is not preached, Lord, and where your word is not studied, we know that churches invariably die. And so we gather here this morning to get a new breath of life, to come up for air, to stick our heads up above the earthly hustle and bustle into heaven so that we might hear what you would have to say to us. And so, God, we pray again specifically that you would speak to our hearts through the word this morning. And I ask that first and foremost for myself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Pastor, it's nice of you to see me. I've uh, talked to you many times, but I've never really had an official 
appointment with the pastor, so you know, this is kind of weird, but I don't know exactly what, what I really had this meeting for, except to say that I guess I'm just, um, I'm struggling in my Christian life. Uh, don't get me wrong, I know I'm a Christian, I, I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross, and I've accepted him as my Savior, but, uh, and you know, I'm active in the church, I serve on those committees, and I'm an usher Sunday morning, and my family's involved in the church. But I, I just struggle in the area of obedience in my Christian life. You know, I'm not here to make some big confession to you, Pastor, but it's just the day-to-day -day stuff. I go, I usher Sunday morning, I'm nice to people, I go home, I blow up at my kids. Where did that come from? You know, I, I thought I was making some progress in the Christian life. I'm like everyone, I, I struggle with greed, I struggle with lust, I struggle with pride. Sometimes I go out after work with uh, people from work and everyone's having a drink and I have a drink. I know it's not wrong to have a beer, but, you know, sometimes I have three, four, and I'm just not proud of myself. I, I know I went a little far. As far as reading the Bible, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, uh, but, look, if I'm honest, I go a week, two weeks sometimes. I don't read the Bible. I don't pray. We pray around the table as a family, but I don't really pray. And so I'm, I'm just struggling with this. How do I really live the Christian life? I feel like such a hypocrite. How do I win the battle for obedience in my life? What do you say, Pastor? So what would you say? How, how would you respond to this hypothetical character? And it is hypothetical. I'm not breaking your confidence here. Uh, this is a, an imaginary thing. What, what do you say? Any of us who are Christians know from experience and uh, from living the Christian life, that obedience is a constant battle, that following Christ is a constant war, that it's a day-by-day, -day, sometimes hour-by-hour -hour conflict, that we're always struggling, and we know that there is no pat answer, there is no cure-all, there is no one-step program that'll fix us in this life. Christianity is a constant battle for holiness. But, but are there some things that we can latch onto to help us in this lifelong battle, knowing and acknowledging that it will not be finished until we reach glory? Well, this morning I want to give you something. I, I want to give you specifically a little word, a little Greek word that will help you, I think, in, in hopefully understanding the whole battle of obedience in the Christian life and doing the will of God. It's a little tiny Greek word, and the word is un. Let's all say it together. Oon. Oh, yes. It sounds like transcendental meditation, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Except not. Oon. Um, look, look at your sermon notes for a second. This insert in your bulletin. A critical little word that if you really grasp what it means and the role it plays here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I think can be a great tool for helping us in the battle for obeying God and living for him. There's, there it is at the top, un. You'll see it written in the Greek characters. That's omicron, upsilon, noon. See that little thing that looks like a V? That's actually a noon. It makes an N sound in Greek. So it's the word un. And there in parentheses, it's transliterated into English. And what does un mean? It means therefore. 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 Un. It's a connector. It's a conjunction. And you, you know the word therefore. Uh, it, it's, it's an idea connector. The word therefore connects idea A to idea B. It says idea A is true, therefore idea B must be true. It's, it draws an inference. The word un is like a bridge 
connecting two cliffs. One idea is on one cliff, therefore idea B on the other cliff. It's a bridge that connects the two. And if we look at chapter 4, verse 1, you see the little word un in there. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. See if you see it in English. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Did you see it? It's the word then. Now, it's translated then here. You can also translate it therefore. As a prisoner for the Lord, un, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So chapter 4, verse 1 is the B side of the cliff. It's, it's the conclusion. It's the inference that we draw. And the question you have to ask yourself is, what is the idea that led to it? What, what inference is Paul drawing? Or as my pastor always used to say, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask, what is it there for? And I never forgot that. He'd always say that, and it was so corny. But uh, I, I remember it. So now there's a therefore. Okay, but, but what is it pointing back to? What idea? Paul's drawing an inference in chapter 4, verse 1. What is he inferring from? And I think the answer is the totality of chapters 1 through 3. In other words, based on everything he's talked about, everything we've talked about for the last seven months in this church, as we've studied chapters 1 through 3, Paul says, all right, you got all that in your brain? Got it all? Therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Everything that we've been studying here the last seven months, the blessings we have in Christ, the greatness of our salvation in Christ, the way God has taken me from being dead in my sins, enslaved to the ways of the world, an object of wrath, and He's taken me and made me an object of His mercy. He set me free like we just sang about this morning. All of that that God's done for me, the, the love that God has for me, the wide, long, high, and deep love of Christ, all of that stuff in chapters 1 through 3, take all of that in your minds, then Paul takes us on the bridge, therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy. So in a sense, Ephesians is a nice little book, because it divides into two fairly neat halves. Like you could just take Ephesians and draw a line right in between chapters 3 through 4, there's the hinge, and the hinge is based on that little word, therefore. Chapters 1 through 3, what do you have? The theology. This is who you are in Christ. This is what Christ has done for you. These are your spiritual blessings in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, therefore, this is how you live as a result. And so you're going to find, as we get into chapters 4 through 6 over the next seven months, that uh, it's going to be very practical. Those of you who like practical application, you're going to totally groove on this. I mean, it's very instructional. Do this. Don't do that. Behave this way. Don't behave that way. It's very different from chapters 1 through 3, which are more theologically oriented. Now, th that distinction isn't perfectly uh, made between the first three chapters and the second three, because there's theology in the second three chapters. But the dominant theme is ethical instructions. So chapters 1 through 3 is theology. Chapters 4 through 6 focused on ethics. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. This is who you are in Christ. Now, this is how you should live because of who you are in Christ. And it's all connected by that little bridge, un. That un takes us from the lofty heights of chapters 1 through 3 down to the practical streets and alleyways of chapters 4 through 6. That's, that's the connection. In fact, this is such a prominent feature of Paul's thought. This is such a prominent construction in Paul's writings that scholars call it 
the indicative imperative pattern in Paul. Uh, th there's an indicative, a fact, followed by an imperative, an instruction. This happens all the time in Paul. Uh, take out your sermon notes for a second. Again, and open up to the inside. You'll see a big list. It looks like this. Just to show you how truly geeky I am. I looked up every instance of un in the letters of Paul. And I had fun doing it. And there are 111 instances of un. And, and I, I tried to find all the instances of un in which he uses it as a connector between the indicative and the imperative. And what I found was 25% of the time, Paul uses un in this pattern. I mean, there's other times when he's just making arguments and he uses un. But 25% of the time, he's making an indicative to imperative kind of argument. So, for instance, look at Romans chapter 6, verse 12 there at the top. We are dead to sin, alive to Christ. That's the indicative. That's the truth. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your body. Come on, you're dead to sin. Don't go back and dig up that corpse. It doesn't make any sense. It's sick. You're free from sin, so live differently. Or ch Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Christ is in us by the Spirit. Therefore, here's the imperative. Don't obey the flesh, but put the flesh to death by the Spirit. And we could read through all these. I'm not going to. I know. You're sad. But we're going to move on. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 5, though, just to look at one more of these. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Just to go back, get us back into Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, because of sins, and he listed sins, because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Here's the fact. God's judgment comes upon sin. So don't be partners with people who are living a godless and disobedient life. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't mean don't have friendships with them, but don't become partners. Don't intertwine your life with these kinds of people because this is where God's wrath is going to land. So stay clear from the blast zone. That's what he's saying. Indicative, imperative. This is the truth, and therefore this is how you should live. And, and so we see this, this pattern in Paul. We see this in Ephesians. And it's all connected by that little word, un. You're saying, gee, pastor, thank you for the academic joyride, but, uh, you know, what does this have to do with anything, <laughs> right? I mean, what, is, what does this mean? I mean, this is interesting, but what does this have to do with daily Christian living? And I think the answer is, it has everything to do with daily Christian living. This has profound ramifications for how we approach obedience in the Christian life. As you are struggling to follow Jesus, this is an amazing revelation, I believe, about our motivation and strength for living the Christian life. Let me tell you specifically what I mean. Specifically, I obey Christ because of who I am in Christ. Christ has loved me. He has saved me. He has done everything for me. He has uh, brought me to himself. Christ has made me a holy person in him. He's forgiven all my sins. Therefore, obey him. That, that, that's, that's a revelation. I mean, think about that. Or to put it simply, obedience is a response to grace. Obedience is a response to his love for us. And we use this argument all the time with children. Any children here, you know your parents, 
use this argument with you all the time. You get in a fight with your brother or sister, and you call them a name, and your mom or your dad says, hey, no calling names. We don't use names like that in this family. In this family, we don't talk to each other like that. Your parents have just used the same kind of argument on you. The assumption is, we love you. You're a part of our family. You belong to this family. You will always belong to this family. We love you, and we're glad you're in this family. Therefore, you need to live like we do in this family, which is we don't call each other names. This is, the, this is how our family works. It's a loving family. We treat each other with respect. You're part of it. You will always be a part of it. Don't doubt that. Therefore, stop calling your brother or sister a jerk or whatever you call them. It's, it's an, indicative that fo- or an imperative that follows an indicative. Or perhaps you uh, think of the, the president. The president is supposed to act presidential. When you become the president, you're supposed to take on a, some kind of decorum and nobility about you. But it's, again, an indicative imperative. The indicative is, you're the president. You've been voted into office. You have been uh, given and invested the dignity of the office of president. You are the defender of the Constitution of the United States. You have been given great privilege and responsibility. So act like a president. Don't go out in public and act like a goofball. You know, act with some dignity and decorum. It doesn't mean you have to be stiff and phony, but you're the president. So act presidential. It's the same kind of logic. It's not, if you act presidential enough, maybe you'll become the president. It's, you are the president, so act presidential. And the same is true in our Christian lives. The reason I should obey Christ and live a holy life is because I am holy before God. The reason I I should do what God says is not so that maybe he'll be happy with me, but because he is happy with me, because I am his child, and so I should live like a member of his family. It's, God has done this for you, therefore, walk worthily of the calling you have received. In fact, look at the back of your sermon notes. Uh, I, I did something else here with Ephesians. Just to give you a sense of what, who we are in Christ, what I did was, see it says my identity in Christ from Ephesians. I took every a statement I could find about the nature of Christians, everything Ephesians has to say about who Christians are, and then I just personalized it. I put I am in front of it because if you're a Christian, you can say this about yourself. What does Ephesians have to say about me in Christ? Number one, I am a saint. The saints are not super-Christians. The saints are Christians. Anyone who's a Christian is a saint. You're a holy one. You're holy. You understand that? I am God's chosen one. I am God's child and a member of God's family. I have been bought back from sin by the blood of Jesus. I'm forgiven. I exist for the praise of God's glory. That's my purpose on earth. God's Spirit lives in me. I have a guaranteed eternal inheritance. I am called to a great hope. I am God's treasured inheritance. My inheritance is heaven. God's inheritance is me. It's radical. It's radical. I have access to God's resurrection power that is at work within me. Studied that last week on Easter. I am no longer an object of God's wrath, but am now an object of His mercy and kindness. My status is that I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I am saved from my spiritual deadness, from the ways of this world, and from Satan's power, and from God's wrath. I am God's workmanship, created to do good works. 
I have an intimate, close connection to God and can freely and confidently approach God. I am at peace with God. I am a new creation that reflects God's character. I'm no longer darkness, but light. I have power in God to stand firm against the devil and all his attacks. And then the, the thing that summarizes it all, I am greatly loved by God himself. This is who I am in Christ. I think some of us ought to take this home and just meditate on it all week. All of us should. Just let this soak into you. This is who I am because of what Jesus has done for me. Therefore, live it out. Put it into practice. Live as a saint. Live as God's child because you are. Be who you are. You know, another way we can look at this is, is to pretend that we could take the un out of chapter 4, verse 1. But let's pretend for a second that we could take the un out. We could take that connection between the first three chapters and the last three chapters. We take out that un. What do you have left? And I think all you have left in chapter 4, verse 1, then, is just rules. That's it. You take out the un, all you have is rules and regulations. Do this, don't do that, behave this way. And if you take the un out, all you have all of a sudden is a laundry list of do's and don'ts. Christianity just becomes a job description with a punch list. You've got to do this, got to do that, don't drink, don't, don't smoke, don't dance, don't chew, don't girl, girls, go with girls who do. Um, you know, don't watch R-rated movies, read my Bible at 5 a.m., ba 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 And if I do all of these rules, then maybe God will be pleased with me. It, it's a more works-oriented approach to Christianity. And that's what happens when you get rid of the un. It's just do this, do that, don't do this, do this action. And hopefully we, we keep up with it. The reality is that many of us have come from uh, perhaps backgrounds that lead us in that direction. Some of you grew up in church traditions or religious traditions where you got the message that being a religious person was about doing a bunch of things and keeping a bunch of traditions. That's the message you got. Okay, that if I'm going to be a religious person or a Christian or whatever it is, then I've got to do this and this and this and attend this ritual and make sure I go to this this many times a month. And that became what Christianity was. And hopefully, if I do it all right, then God will be happy with me. Hopefully. Hopefully I'll go to heaven if I do all the things right and if my good list outweighs my bad list. And that becomes that kind of approach to religion and to Christianity. Or perhaps you came from a family where your parents were quick to point out your flaws and quick to tell you what you did wrong, but they never told you what you did right. And then you come to God, and now he's your father in heaven. And you go, oh, so this works the same way as it did at home, where it's, it's just a matter of living up to all the expectations. And we take that over into the Christian life. We assume that Christianity is about pleasing an unpleasable parent. Or even uh, some of you are just perfectionists. I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> I'll be the first one to admit it. I, I'm my own worst critic. Uh, you know, some of you can criticize me, but I can do way better. I, I'm my own worst critic. Don't criticize me by the way um, you know I, I, I'm always pushing myself and I'm always you know oh I could do this better oh, I should have said that in the sermon I should have you know done this better in my life and, and I can take that over to Christianity oh I, I got to do this better God I, I push myself so that I never just enjoy God and as a result of taking out the un is you have a lifeless joyless shell of a Christian experience where it's just about doing all the right things. But that's what I was trying to illustrate with our fictitious parishioner here where you were all playing the, the pastor and this was a person. You know, I was, I was trying to portray a person who saw Christianity as a bunch of supposed 
I know I'm supposed to do this, and I'm supposed to do that, and I have such a hard time doing all the supposed to's. No, no, Christianity should be a response to a loving, living, joyful relationship with Christ. Because he loves me, because I love him, therefore, I want to do what he says. I want to walk in obedience and unity with him. A totally different framework for obedience. Look at your sermon notes. I have a quote there from a guy named Steve McVeigh. He wrote a little book called Grace Rules. It's a book about grace. In this book, Steve talks about the fact that he, for many years, was a Christian and a pastor who had this approach to God. And here's his quote. He says, The words for Christ and in Christ may represent two totally different systems of living. For most of my Christian life, my idea of living for Jesus meant dedicating myself to doing the things that he would want me to do. I read the Bible primarily to discover principles for living a godly lifestyle. I regularly committed myself to those principles. I sometimes told people that I lived by my convictions. It was my belief that if a Christian committed himself to obeying the Word of God, he would be blessed by God. That, however, is the perfect description of a legalistic Christian lifestyle. It is an attempt to gain God's blessing and to make spiritual progress by what we do. There was a major problem I faced every time I seriously examined the Bible to see if I was measuring up to what I thought God expected of me. I always discovered other commands that I wasn't yet fully obeying. Consequently, I never felt completely satisfied because I always saw how far I still had to go before I had reached the place I thought I had needed to be spiritually. Christianity is not about doing things for Christ. It is about being in Him. Now, let's be clear here. Are there rules, obligations, commands, laws in the Christian faith? Of course. We're about to study three chapters full of them in the next seven months in Ephesians 4 through 6. We're about to study all kinds of commands and obligations. But the point is, if those obligations are not flowing out of a living relationship with Christ, if I'm just doing those things for Jesus, because that's what I'm supposed to do, and not because I'm in Christ and his life is working in me and through me and out of me, then I'm heading into a kind of legalism. And so the antidote to legalism, I believe, is love. To know God's love for me and to love him in response. I think that's what we could say to our our hypothetical parishioner. Uh, We could explain the whole un thing, but that might take a while. So maybe we could just say, love. God loves you, and you love him, right? Go back to your first love hypothetical parishioner. God loves you. Before the beginning of time, the Father in love predestined you to be saved. The Son entered into time, and He died on the cross because He loves you in order to save you. And the Holy Spirit in the fullness of time came into your life and and made you a new person so that you could have faith and receive Christ in love in order to be saved. And so from eternity past into eternity future, There is just love from God to you. God is working on your behalf, and even now as a Christian, in love, he is continuing to pour out grace on me despite my failures, despite my stumblings. He keeps pouring out grace and pouring out grace, bringing me along the Christian life so that I'll someday come to him and be in fellowship with him. From eternity past to eternity future, all the power of the triune God has been leveraged on my behalf in order to save me. Therefore, let's live with him. (laughs) 
Let's obey him. Come on. What else would we want to do? It'd be ridiculous to think otherwise. Let's walk joyfully with this God who loves us so much. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15? He said, if you love me, someone say it, keep my commands. There it is. If you love me, if you and I are in love with each other, Jeremy, and if I'm your God and you're my child, and I've saved you and I love you and you can be confident in my love for you, then walk with me. Stay close to me and do what I say. Don't you know that my commands are because I love you anyway? It's a totally, totally different perspective on living the Christian life. It's an obedience that flows out of relationship and love, not an obedience for some other warped and deficient reason. This morning, God is inviting me, and he's inviting you, he's beckoning you to come into a deeper relationship with him. That's what God wants from you. What does God want from you? He just wants you. He just wants to be closer with you. He just wants you to love him more. That's what he wants from you. He wants us to stop hobbling back and forth between the world and, and God, between my standards and God's standards. And he just wants you to, to jump off the cliff into his arms, take the free fall, and, and let his love catch you. And as you are caught up in a loving relationship with Christ, let the obedience just flow naturally. Let's just flow naturally. If you love me, he said, keep my commands. Christ is beckoning you today. Won't you come to him, to the risen Christ? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for your great love. I thank you for your love that surpasses my comprehension. And yet you call us to comprehend it. And Lord Jesus, I pray that because we love you, because you have loved us, because we have entered into a living relationship with the living Christ, help us, Lord, therefore, to live worthily. And God, I pray that as we study the next three chapters of Ephesians, that as we get into the the commands and the, the rules and the instructions, God, help us not to forget chapters one through three. Help us to approach obedience from the standpoint of a living, loving relationship. And God, I pray for any Christians here who are struggling with the issue of obedience, who are struggling with discipleship, they keep falling on their faces. God, call them back to that first love that they had with Jesus. Call them back to that joyful relationship. God, I pray that reading the Bible for us wouldn't be about getting something checked off our list, but that we would want to read the Bible because it's how we hear your voice. That, Lord Jesus, we would want to obey your commands because that's how we walk closely with you. And so, Christ, I pray, let this church be marked by a living, loving, vibrant relationship with Christ that results logically, naturally, and supernaturally in obedience and holiness. God, I pray that this church would be filled with holiness and joy, with intimacy with Christ and obedience to Christ. And God, help us to be those kind of people. We trust you. Thank you, God, for your patience with us. Thank you that you're still working with us and that you won't let us go no matter how we squirm. We love you, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.